0: Hello, welcome. This is Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the brave Nazi-era pastor, moral theologian, resister, and martyr. And today we're going to talk about a subject that is a key part of understanding Bonhoeffer and of course. Uh, the implications of uh, this subject are far, far-reaching, uh, and uh, you'll understand why as I talk with my guest today, Joel Edward Gosa, uh, author of America's Unholy Ghosts: The Racist Roots of Our Faith and Politics. Welcome, Joel.
1: Good morning, Rob. It's so good to be with you. It's an honor. We're together
0: uh, here. Where are we? Des Moines. I've Des Moines been on so long, yeah. I can't <laughs> I have to locate myself. We're in Des Moines. Uh, we're in an, an abandoned church building, yeah. abandoned mega church. We don't have the time to talk about that story, but we're here with a wonderful group of people who have come in from all over the country, using part of this facility uh, for a conference. So we mm-hmm. happen to be together. Yeah. And I learn of your good work, and of course, it connects directly to that very important period in Bonhoeffer's life yeah, and absolutely. work at, uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the early 30s and then again in mm-hmm. the late 30s, uh, but mm-hmm. particularly in his encounter with the African American community right. uh, with the black church right. at the Abyssinian mm-hmm. Baptist Church in Harlem mm-hmm. uh, when uh, a fellow seminarian took him. Uh, uh, for his first experiences right, with yeah. black worship and preaching uh, under Adam Clayton Powell, yeah. uh, the pastor in that period of time, and that would revolutionize him internally, yeah. and it would lead to some very, very yeah. consequential decisions yeah. on his part. Yeah. We won't rehearse all of that. Yeah, we'll right. just say it that gave it gave
1: him eyes to see.
0: In it many did ways. indeed. It did yeah. indeed, uh, and particularly on this subject, which is your yeah, subject. Absolutely. But before we actually get into your book, sure, uh, America's Unholy Ghosts, and uh, the, the, the content, mm-hmm. uh, important content of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like our our folks to get to know you a little bit sure, too absolutely. you're not just an author right, right uh, you right. have a lot more to your story tell <laughs> yeah. us just a little bit yeah. about
1: yourself well I was uh, raised in Houston Texas and I was raised uh, in a self-described fundamentalist context and in many ways I think I think some people some of your audience will understand what I mean by this and that I received the best that fundamentalism had to offer and so, you know, my my uh, father was a Southern Baptist, chairman of the deacon guy, uh, and one of the most remarkable humans i've ever ever met we ended up losing my father in 2014 Uh, but i write about him a a little bit in the book and just the the guidance that he that he provided in my life uh but more than the guidance just the example that he set. um and one of the things that you know i certainly try to learn from my father i don't know if i did as well as he did is trying to live with integrity with what you do know Uh, Which became important in my story, uh, in that my story was I grew up, you know, Southern Baptist, ended up attending Wheaton College, uh, and one of the things that I had to wrestle with while I was at Wheaton was, you know, what did I believe because... I was a Texan. (laughs) This is my first time out of Texas. And what did I believe because I was a Christian? Because one of the things that I discovered, right, and and what ended up happening in the context that I was in, I felt, is that so often we placed our conservative culture and our Christianity in the same blender and called it Christianity. And so, you know, know, Wheaton really challenged me to grow and to think and from there I went to uh, Duke Divinity School. And what became clear at, at Duke, it became this crisis moment in my life. One, real, I realized I had loved the Southern Baptist Church. I'd always envisioned myself going into Southern Baptist ministry, suburban Southern Baptist ministry. And yet I, I realized I wasn't a fundamentalist um, and that there would be a very limited, perhaps no way, to be able to be a pastor within that context that, that I could see. And then, simultaneous to that, I was also an undiagnosed diabetic. Um, yeah. and, and so it brought this really difficult period of my life and I ended up dropping out of seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, what ends up happening is I move into Houston's larger Fifth Ward area. And for those who are not familiar uh, with Houston, Fifth Ward in, in the larger area is home to really dire immigrant poverty in African-American poverty. Um, George Foreman's neighborhood is there, Barbara Jordan. Uh, for those of my generation, the ghetto boys, uh, was a rap, rap group that came out of our community. And once... And this, what took you there? Why, why you know, did I had you a, land there? Yeah, I had a friend that taught in the community. And so I was trying to re navigate my life, you know, I'm in in my early 20s, I wanted to go into church ministry, that door had closed, I was in the professional world, uh, but I was really still searching for meaning. And one of my friends, he he was a few years older than me, uh, but more than a few years, he had a lot more wisdom than I did. And he uh, he was teaching down in school, so he invited me and a couple of friends to come learn about Houston's East Side and just to kind of see what was going on. So I was working in corporate America at a company called KPMG, that's one of the four largest accounting sure. firms in the nice world. You know. um, and so uh, at the time, I was going uh, to you know the First Baptist Church there in Houston in corporate America while living among pretty dire immigrant poverty. And so what you're trying to do, and, and when I moved in. You know, my worldview was thoroughly shaped uh, by white conservative Christianity, even though I didn't necessarily consider myself an evangelical, I was still shaped by that, and then free market kind of ideologies. And that made sense within a segregated context. Uh, But once I moved into the inner city community, that could no longer explain what it was that I was witnessing. And, you know, as I I get into, uh, you know, I fear, I began fearing what I was witnessing uh, was not simply a system that was not working but a system that was actually functioning to do the exact work that it was designed to do and that what I witnessed within the life of these people from my community that were becoming family f- for me was destruction by design and so uh, it really committed me to trying to figure out and really understand what it was that the, that I was witnessing and kind of the the religious imagination, the political imagination, the economic imagination, how all of those factors came together to form a nation so deeply divided along lines of racial economic
0: inequality. We're going to take a pause just here for a minute to get some housekeeping. Yeah. I'm back with Joel Edward Goza, author of America's Unholy Ghosts. We had to take a little break because <laughs> of uh, the venue here, the location that mm-hmm. we're in. We got a little noisy. Now we're in a yeah. new location, but we're restarting the conversation. And I want to ask you this You're living in the Fifth Ward mm-hmm. in Houston. Yes, sir. And your commitment to that community is going to deepen. Right. Considerably, absolutely. It's not just uh, you're a neighbor. Yeah, you're now getting bonded to this community. Right,
1: and that includes mm-hmm. choice of churches. Right, absolutely. So
0: pick a pick it up from there.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and maybe I can can. Um talk about maybe the the moment where I feel like I was really broken, and where that, commi- that commitment ends up becoming, in my mind, and at that moment, uh, kind of a lifetime commitment, um, and it was a night where there was a gang fight that had broken out right outside of our house, and, you know, one of my friends and I would look outside, and some of the kids are still in the street, and, you know, guns go off, and the kids are there, so we run out, and we grab the kids, and we're able to get them to Tucked into their grandparents' house, and by the time that we get back, um, most of the fighting had been broken up. And what really broke me that evening um, was the mother of these children were in the street, and they were still and they were weeping. And one of the things I realized, kind of almost instinctively at that moment, was that their tears represented a much larger tragedy than this one individual night. It, it was this tragedy of people struggling against very difficult odds and very desperate situations uh, in a nation and in a city that provided very little help um, for people in poverty. And there was something that broke inside of me and that simultaneously committed me to trying to understand what it was that we were witnessing. So what ends up happening is I end up going back to Duke Divinity um, and I end up Beginning uh, to read at Duke Divinity, Martin Luther King Jr., but begin reading him through eyes that had now for the very first time uh, seen what my city had been hiding from me all my life. And the racial realities and the the realities of uh, injustice that was really shaping our life together that brought a real power to MLK's uh, message. And from there, what I really had hoped to do is after Duke to go back to the community and be able to be a resource to a church while probably re-entering into the professional world. Um, and I ended up getting a... Uh, internship with an African American church and the reason, the, the main reason that I had gone to the African American church in many ways was pragmatic because they spoke English you know and so in the inner city community finding a church that spoke English but really understood what was going because on. Because the
0: other congregations would have right, been Spanish speaking They were Spanish, they were... the
1: other congregations uh, in the uh, in the Hispanic side of the tracks where I was living at the time were all Spanish speaking, I didn't know any Spanish um, and uh, the church that I ended up doing a summer internship with the, in 2006, uh, spearheaded the urban redevelopment in, in the community, and really for the next 10 years, uh, you know, we walked alongside and worked together. Uh, as soon as I graduated from Duke, I went on staff full-time with them, uh, working both with church and uh, some of the urban redevelopment issues, and learning to see my eyes uh, kind of unblinded by the segregated context that I was raised in.
0: I'm talking... With Joel Edward Goza, author of America's Unholy Ghosts: the, raci- the Racist Roots of Our Faith and Politics, I want to take you back just to one thing you said, mm-hmm. um, and that is, you know, that your city hid mm-hmm. uh, these things right. from you. Right. Surely, racism was was apparent in in much of Houston life.
1: It's interesting the way What do you mean by hidden? So, for instance, we have these things called overpasses. When we we laid out our freeways. Now, why did we have overpasses? One of the reasons we had overpasses was because communities like the one that I grew up in, the suburbs of Houston, they could get to downtown without ever having to see what was going on in the communities that they were passing through. So if you were raised in a suburban context outside of a major city, if you took the feeder roads rather than the freeway, you would see race in a very different way. And so even though these racial realities are there, because of segregation, it is not staring us in the face on an everyday manner. And so it was very easy for the context that I was raised in to think that our system was working well for everybody and that you know what what i saw was you know parents who loved me a church who loved me a, a good school system and so when i would think about poverty what ended up in my mind it wasn't because we had set up a bad system for a way to run our community together the problem was really with just the poor folks rather than to understand that there were systems in place uh, that what was really going on was this destruction by design, um, and so even and though it's easy
0: to pass over those things oh, yeah, if you literally is. drive over them, and you don't and see, and what's happening is mm-hmm. invisible beneath you, right? Okay, so, so now you're you're in the life of the church, mm-hmm. uh, in an African American church, and I'm right. curious uh, whether there was any suspicions about you when you entered the black church world, here you are a white guy, uh, Texan, Mm -hmm. you know, this is Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, and
1: is anyone looking at you with a suspicious eye? What is his motive for being here? I'm sure that is the case, you know, I am am sure that is the case, but what I'm also sure of is that I've never been more embraced and more loved in my life. You know, and the African American church has no naivety about uh, America's racism. And yet they have always been, with, despite their lack of naivety, there's been a great vulnerability, meaning that they were ready to take people like myself in and love us right where we were at, you know. And uh, that's a transformative, transformative experience um, to be able to be in a place where. You experience God's love, um, not because of your purity, right, but despite the type of racial history that you represent. Um, And it became a remarkable environment to begin relearning my world through new eyes.
0: Eventually you are ordained
1: Mm -hmm. in a black denomination National Baptist
0: please correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that was MLK's denomination so
1: they split that's so, right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I M- do MLK that. and Gardner Taylor uh, end up begin forming the Progressive Baptist. That's right. Yeah. But there's, and that's a, a, there's, that's a, there's a common yeah. uh, trunk of the tree. There is. There, there. is. And what, what becomes so interesting is when you look at uh, the African American Church today, the powerful impact MLK has had on it, precisely because at the time he was a very controversial figure even with inside the African American Church. Uh, and one of the things that we don't often talk about is, n- one, we do we do a good job, I think, sometimes examining how the African-American church, church formed King, but fail to pay attention to how in his wake King also formed the African-American church.
0: Um, yeah, there's even parts of that story to be told around Letter from Birmingham Jail. Right. That absolutely. it wasn't entirely to the white church. Yeah. Uh, he was opposed also by his colleagues in the black church. Right. Well so for you, none of this is theory. Right. You have lived this. You have right. lived it deeply right. uh in treating your subject, the racist mm-hmm. roots of our faith and politics. Mm-hmm. For you, uh you didn't do all your work in a classroom or a musty no. basement no. library.
1: <laughs> no, not you all. You did of it. it in the
0: real world. <laughs> right. And and uh and you did it at some point personal risk and cost here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, tell us about your your approach to the book. Yeah. So, you decide you're going to actually look at this question very seriously and very deeply. And the result of that is the book.
1: Yeah. But tell us about yeah. Well, you know, what you're wrestling with with different questions uh, than perhaps what I graduated Wheaton College wrestling with. You know, what I was wrestling with was, you know, how is it that in Houston we have these corporations making billions of dollars and in the very shadow of these buildings we have people going hungry? How is it that we save in these huge churches so many souls but we don't produce any prophetic rage about what is going on in our city? How is it that we use government dollars to literally defeat gravity in Houston, build spaceships and empower a white man to walk on the moon, but we can't find the ability to educate our children, to feed our children? What is going on that creates this chaos that I see? Because what, what I was seeing was clear to me the result of very bad public policies. And so what I wanted to understand was how the American experiment and American democracy and Christianity were able to initially harmonize their institutions uh, with the institution of slavery itself and then how those type of ideologies ended up forming us throughout this American experiment. And one of the things that King called us to was what he refers to as examining the roots of ideational race hate. And so what I do in the book is really look at how enlightenment uh, philosophies, this age of reason was also the age where ra- racecraft ends up emerging in the world that justifies slavery, that intentionally harmonizes democracy with slavery within the colonial American experiment, that intentionally harmonizes Christianity with slavery and I wanted to trace the type of ideas that are today kind of forming our common sense when we think about the very nature of what government is about, what economics is about, what religion is about uh, and trace how it was that this thing has been, been haunting the American experiment and that the chaos that we see today is because our cultural common sense, the very way we think about these matters is perfectly designed to produce the results that we are getting today.
0: I'm going to ask you to go into some detail in tracing that in the uh, field of religion, particularly in the Christian church, and maybe even a little more narrowly than that, but overall the American Christian church. Uh, But first, to to kind of frame this, I want to read some of your chapter titles here, because I I find them uh, not only quite clever, but… Uh, they have deep, deep uh, implications here. You have Mm -hmm. chapter two, Thomas Hobbes imagining a rational and racist world order. Mm -hmm. You use uh, uh, extended hyphens uh, Mm -hmm. in there. Uh, Three, John Locke institutionalizing an aristocratic and racist revolution. Mm -hmm. Chapter four, Adam Smith ingraining uh, Hard hearted and racist instincts and ideologies. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I get the point here. Yeah. Uh, so take us through on right. the religion end because, of course, sure, absolutely. that's where we spend most of our time yeah, in yeah. talking about love is the church. And, yeah. and of course, he saw it in the right. church, in the context yeah, of the he church. Absolutely. He took it back to Germany, yeah. saw it there in the church. Yeah. So, let's talk a little bit about the American church. Okay
1: and this yeah. ideation. Right, right. Well, maybe uh, you know. You just read the chapter titles. Maybe I should say who these folks are for those who don't know who they are. Please do. Uh, Thomas Hobbes is uh, the father of English philosophy. Uh, John Locke is the father of liberalism. Adam Smith is the father of capitalism. And what I write about is how to be able to have a colonial project that was comfortable with slavery, one of the first things that they had to do was to convince Christians that slavery harmonized with their religion. And the way that they did that is changing what Christianity in many ways was all about. And so you have this age of reason, right? And the three lies, I I trace three lies through these philosophers, Uh, and in the age of reason what becomes important isn't relationships it becomes about formulas. And so the first lie that happens is that we can know the God of the broken and the abused without knowing the broken and abused who are made in his image. So the way that that plays out theologically, when you look at the history of America, one of the things that both conservative Christians and liberal Christians, what they both held in common is that neither of them had to learn from black folks about their religion. And in so many ways, the whole theological argument becomes an argument between white people who don't realize how much they're really agreeing on in the first place. The second lie that becomes very influential is that religion is about soul salvation. And what becomes important in the Enlightenment is to train people to read the Bible in such a way where they know what it is about before they've ever read the passages. So, before you know the Bible, you already know that John 3.16 is the most important verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know Romans 13. that but whosoever
0: all, believeth on him, which right. becomes the operative, I would argue, yeah. clause. Yeah. Only because if you stop at God so loved the world, it has very different
1: yeah. meaning. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: Pardon me for interrupting. Yeah, no, no. It, thank you, thank you for, for
1: for interrupting. But but the idea that uh, John three sixteen and soul salvation is the height of the exactly. message. You had to train people about that beforehand, and so they had to know that religion was apolitical to believe that Christianity was apolitical. And what ends up happening is because John 3.16 is raised so high, because Romans 13 in obedience to rulers is raised so high what we end up losing is the prophetic tradition of Scripture that says that true religion is this, is taking care of the widow and the orphan in their distress while also keeping oneself from being polluted from the world, right? Um, In a way that had politics and piety and harmony together. Uh, And then the final lie that I trace out is that we get convinced that indifference to injustice is no threat to one's intimacy with God. And a lot of that comes from the stoic influences, from Adam Smith's writing, uh, that influenced the way that we approach things. So maybe to break, break that down a little bit, one of the things um, that Smith does is he forms our free market economics that basically believes if you allow the system to do its own work, everybody's going to be taken care of. So uh, from what scripture teaches is that you know, the fight for justice is always a fight. And the prophetic tradition, if you're indifferent to these things, you cannot know God in the right way, you know? And what becomes interesting is that we call God Father, right? But we end up thinking we can know this Father God without intimacy with all of his children and not really deeply appreciating how the less of his children and the less diverse of his children that we know, the less we actually know this Father God,
0: I'm immediately connecting all this, and I hope uh, our our circle of friends here on the podcast will uh, explore the same, is of course, Bonhoeffer's Sanctorum Communio, his first Mm -hmm. dissertation on the sociology of the church, which challenged all of these um, presuppositions uh, and so forth in the German church. Mm-hmm. And was revolutionary that way. It right. was. It was uh, a, a complete right. challenge to all of the underpinnings of yeah. German Protestantism, right? Which is reflects all these mm-hmm. elements. Now, so you've identified a big problem here, mm-hmm. an enormous problem, right. and uh, uh, this non-Christian. Reinterpretation mm-hmm. of Christianity, right? Essentially, right. Uh, what you're outlining here.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the cure? Mm-hmm. Well, when you look at why the project began, what was its purpose? One of the ways, one of the reasons that we had to design Christianity this very way. Was because this harmonized with the interest of the people who were driving the colonial project to make a lot of money. So for me to make off money off of slavery, if I'm a rich landowner, what I've got to do is convince other folks that this really harmonizes with their faith. So when you think about how do you start unwriting these things, it's changing who we're learning from. We have to begin learning from different folks, and I desperate I. Part of the reason I write the book is because what I start trying to imagine is what would America look like today if instead of lecturing King, people like Billy Graham started learning from King? What if an Eric McCaskis, instead of just reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer, allows Bonhoeffer to make him vulnerable to the African-American tradition? What does America look like if that becomes… If that happens, you know, like one of the things that Bonhoeffer writes significantly about is reconciliation. And yet when you look at American history, white folks are ready to read Bonhoeffer. Are we ready to read James Cone and really wrestle with it? No. Are we ready to learn from MLK in a really deep manner, the radical MLK? Well, absolutely not. Um, And what becomes tragic is that when you look at Western theology and you look at white theologians, perhaps Bonhoeffer is the only really noted theologian who is white who takes the time to deeply learn from the African American tradition. Uh, And when that is the case, it starts helping make sense of the kind of theological crisis that we find ourselves in today. Um, but what I try to be very clear about is that even though I, I believe our, that we are in crisis today, that crisis is the opportunity for significant paradigm shifts, for significant times to begin really rethinking the world that we are in today and begin learning from those that we have always ignored.
0: So, give us a prescription, doctor. We're 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 sick. But the white church. Mm-hmm. Uh, is not well. It is not well. What's your prescription? Where, where do we begin
1: mm-hmm.
0: a, a pathway to moral, ethical, mm-hmm. sociological, even mm-hmm. theological health?
1: Well, I'll tell you what MLK said. He said join me. So what we what you can't forget is that the civil rights movement the civil rights movement itself, in his mind, was a work of racial reconciliation, of Christian racial reconciliation. And he said, Stand by me. And what he truly believed was that he was going to awaken the white Christian world's soul and that they were going to stand together. And he says, It ends up being his greatest heartbreaking moment, and that what he finds out in in his words was that America's Christians were more white than Christian. When you fast forward, we try racial reconciliation again in our nation. There is this movement that happens called Promise Keepers. And what we are gonna do is we're gonna start doing reconciliation work. We're gonna start really getting involved And trying to heal these type of divides that are in our church. But the commitment of promise keepers was we're going to keep politics to the side. And it becomes an interesting story of how you have this reconciliation movement that keeps politics to the side. And there's this, this really fascinating article that the Wall Street Journal runs by a guy named Douglas Blackman, who ends up winning, I believe he wins the Pulitzer later on. But he says, you know, this is the strange thing about our nation right now. And he's writing in 1998. He said that white evangelicals might actually lead us out in healing the divides of our nation. And yet... At the end of the article, he talks to an African-American man and says, listen, man, until we start talking about politics, we're not really talking about anything. And so for the healing of our nation, we have to change the way that we think about religion and the way that we think about politics. And this is my one takeaway in 20 seconds. What we've got to realize is that healthy politics is only measured by its impact on the poor and the oppressed. That's Christian politics. Healthy religion is only measured by its impact on the poor and the oppressed. And when we begin to no longer keep this political divisions on the side, but begin really learning how these political divisions are intimate to our faith and have to change the way that we think about everything, we can't can't heal. Jim Crow churches cannot heal themselves. The children of Jim Crow will never heal Jim Crow. They don't have the answers. And yet, there is a tradition in our nation that I believe that we can learn from. and it can and there is no per, there's no perfection out there, and there's no silver bullets. Uh, but when the white church Begins seeing the children in cages at the border as their children. That's life changing. When it begins seeing the inner city students within their community. Not as inner city students, but as their children. That's life changing. And when we can no longer justify being indifferent and silent on these issues. uh, For healing to happen, it takes a miracle. And miracles happen every day. And we need a miracle. The miracles happen every day.
0: Well, here's my prescription uh, for our podcast family, and that is to start this journey by reading America's Unholy Ghosts The Racist Roots of Our Faith and Politics by Joel Edward Goza, uh, published by Cascade. Cascade Books. Cascade is uh, your publisher. Uh, You'll find it anywhere uh, you normally procure your books. And I'd like to have a longer conversation and maybe have a conversation yeah. again about this. Thank you for well, bringing it to our I attention. I'm so honored. Your conclusions, to be with you. I would say, are terribly Bonhoefferian. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, they're sure. very reminiscent they of his thoughts yeah.
0: after the encounter at Abyssinian yeah. Baptist in Harlem and uh, what drove him from there uh, right to the end of his life. So yeah. thank you, yeah. Joel Edward Goza.
1: Well, I'm honored and humbled to be with you. Thank
0: you. The book is America's Unholy Ghosts the racist roots of our faith and politics. See you at the next episode.